Episode number 416. My name is Minterdial and I'm your host for this podcast. First, I'd like to give a shout out and thanks for putting up a five-star review of the show. That's by Leslie M on iTunes. So this week's interview is with Scott Shoot. Scott is head of the Mindfulness and Compassion programs at LinkedIn, building characteristics like emotional intelligence, resilience, and a better sense of well-being. He's also an accomplished photographer and the author of the brand new Full Body Yes, Change Your Work and Your World from the Inside Out, which comes out May 11, 2021. In this conversation with Scott, we discuss what it means to be inside out, his journey toward becoming head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn, a simple technique to discover your purpose, the power of Ikigai, his experience in writing his book, and some of the great key messages within You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Scott Shoot. Wow, great to have you on the show. You are an author who are about to release on the 11th of May a book where you worked with a team that I loved working with, Page Two. And uh, your your book is called Full Body Yes. You have this whacked out crazy job title, Head of Mindfulness and Compassion. You can't make that one up. Uh, and you do that at LinkedIn. Um, you're also a fantastic photographer. And I, can, I, I can't vouch for your music, but by the telling of the guitar in the background and a few of your stories, you're also a musician. In your own words, Scott, how would you like to describe yourself? Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I don't know, Renaissance man, uh, <laughs> kid from Kansas, uh, I, I, someone who follows their heart. Mm. I just wanted, I just want to express myself, and all of these things are different facets of that expression. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, you you can see. I mean, the quality of your photography is is scintillating, and and within that sort of notion of bringing to life nature, bringing to life music, making it vibrate, that's sort of what I get from you, just from the little that I know of you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's in essence it. And so what you've touched on is, you know, I think each of us, my my mental model of how the world works, and I know we all have different interpretations of that, is that we each of us are a pure spark of the divine. You might call it soul, a drop in the ocean of the divine, however your mental model is. And we wear a physical body and a mental body and an emotional body to get around in this world. But wow, when we can let that light shine through, that's when the magic happens. And so that's, that's what I wanna be. I want, when you see my photography or read my book or listen to my music or, or even hear us talking today, what I want is for that pure soul to shine through and be less encumbered by all the these other bodies that we wear around. So in listening to you and your voice and, and, and the things you've done as well, it, it's sort of hard to imagine. Well, for some people, it, it could almost be, whoa, you know, I could never be like that. Because, uh, I mean, it sounds perfect. But your story, <laughs> your, your story is far from perfect. It's- Exactly. But so, wow, you know, so life, life can be really challenging. And it's had, it's certainly had its challenges for me. Um, 
one of the things I, I love to quote Rumi because I think he's so eloquent, a Persian master from the 13th or 14th century. And he says, I'll paraphrase, but if you don't like the rub, how will you ever become polished? Uh, and so I take great solace in this fact that, you know, when we go through challenges, it's for us. Like I, I firmly believe that life doesn't happen to us. It happens for us, you know, so we're growing in our capability and eventually then life happen, life can happen through us when we gain enough kind of partnership with the world. Mm, I love it. It, it makes me think maybe, is that how the expression, here's the rub? Ah, I don't, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if they're related, but yeah. it could be. Well, you know, I'm, I, I'm also thinking of the genie coming out of the bottle now. <laughs> so you've got my imagination wearing. It, it's so important, this notion of, of, of the challenges, because they're all you, we, different, because everybody's version of them and experience of them is different. So it, then it becomes hard to compare. Mm. And then the other challenges or the, the, maybe the narrative I keep on coming across is it's people who are confronted with life-changing experiences that actually then turn the switch on to lightness, love, mm. and the betterment of the world, me and the world. I, I feel like it, it seems like that is the passage almost you have to go through in order to be enlightened. Mm. What do you think about that? Yeah, there's a couple things there. I mean, first you're talking about comparison. And I recently was listening to, oh, I'm going to forget her name, but she's one of the last living survivors um, that was in one of the concentration camps, in Nazi concentration camps during World War II. And now she's a therapist and you may know who I'm talking about. I've forgotten her name. And she was recounting how she was helping one of her clients and the client was feeling a little bit embarrassed, right? Because the client was talking about her own personal problems. And then she realized who she was talking to, right? This, this woman who had suffered at the hands of the Nazis as a 16-year-old, and it had her teenage years taken away. Mm. And this woman said, you know, essentially, like, you, you can't compare, you know, and um, pain is pain. People go through things and, you know, my pain's no different than your pain. And so that's one, is to realize that everybody goes through stuff and we, we suffer in our own ways, regardless of how the severity looks on the outside. And then to your second question of, you know, does it take, does it take these challenges? Uh, <laughs> I think in some ways, yes. You know, I, I discovered a spiritual path early and I was reading these stories of these masters and every one of them had gone through these incredible journeys, right? had had their families killed or had, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They'd, they'd gone through these incredible journeys. And I was thinking, wow, like I was having this conversation with the universe because I was a little bit afraid. Like, really, is this the only way it happens? Like, you know, can I learn through joy? Can I learn through humor? Can I learn through? And the instant answer I got back was, well, you better listen. And I think this is the heart of it because life is always out there trying to teach us something. And when we're in tune, when we're really in tune with that inner voice, that inner guidance with life, then it doesn't have to be hard. But so often we're not, so often we're distracted with our own mess that finally life to get our attention uh, has to not just tap on the door or kick on the door or pound on the door. It blows the door open and rearranges our furniture inside, maybe even takes down the whole house. Mm. And then we wonder like, oh, 
what why didn't you just tell me what you should have just given me a hint like yeah well <laughs> told you so yeah told you so yeah indeed well i spent my observation and and the 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 issue is how do you how do you make people like blow their own doors down per se get them to switch on and because you know the other thing that I I'm frequently coming across is you you write about purpose in your book and mm. well how do you find that early so maybe at the age of thirteen where you started meditation you got into Rumi mm-hmm. you you had various things that you were open to doing and and you have that enlightenment but for others finding purpose finding passion when I'm a teenager I don't know if I want to be a fire truck a driver or an insurance salesperson or a Yoda living in India. Sure. Sure. How do you find it? That is the thing. Um, I think it's, it's understanding what your values are and just starting with values. Everybody has values. And when you take a step or when you vote with your time, you ask yourself the question, am I stepping towards my values? Am I voting with my time towards my values? Uh, and that's the simplest thing to do because that we can decide in every moment. Is this job I take? Is this thing that I say? Is this action that I take? Um, do they align with who I, with my values? Which is another way of saying who I am at my deepest level. So I think that's the easiest way. And then the other things, these mental models, these bigger picture things, I think they come over time. Well, what I like about what you just said is that, I mean, to get to know oneself is is quite a journey and, and certainly hard for pretty much everybody. But you make it very simple, I feel. If you just sort of, you still spend the time, make the effort, but just figure out what are your values. And, and uh, I generally say that there are 75 values out there and they're all bloody useful and wonderful. And, and it's easy to sort of say, yep, yep. Oh, yep, yep. Oh, you like that one too. Oh, oh God, can't be that yeah and, and it's sort of like life actually in that not that the world is everybody's oyster but there are many choices out there and you but you only have 24 hours in a day yeah, and yeah. and and the stricture to move from the oh yeah i like everything i like 75 and move down to those core values mm. but do that that's the work that you need to do because that's the work it, it can't be just like what my father liked it's got to be what i liked and I think one of the way, I think it's exactly right. And I think one of the ways we can find those values, like if somebody hasn't done the work, uh, where I would start is, you know, tell me about your peak experiences and the valley experiences, right? So you create a timeline of your life, right? On paper from zero to however old you are. And you draw a line right in the middle, bisect it, you know, left to right. And then put your top three or five experiences on top and your bottom three or five experiences on bottom. And then you kind of marinate in those. And then I would ask the question, like, why? What was it about those that made them so great? Or what was it about them that made it so terrible? And at the root of that why is usually your values. Hmm. That's a great exercise. I like it. Well, um, problem is you use the word peak. And so now I'm thinking drugs. Um, <laughs> I noticed you didn't uh, write about microdosing. Uh, I was wondering what you might think about that. I, I, I'm quite a big believer in the power of psychedelics to open you open 
you know, blow doors down, to use the allegory we were using before, to awaken, to bring in consciousness, certainly in, in a guided way. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think of that? And, and does, it have, does it have a legitimate role in, in being inside out and, and uh, helping people to realize how small they are in the world? Uh, you know, I'm going to say that, uh, well, I have a value. So I'll come at it from two points. One is uh, it seems to be valuable for lots of people. And we seem to be learning more about it all the time that make it a useful experience and a super valuable experience for some people. So that's what I would say. And there, and I would say that I am not personally an expert in it. The other thing is one of my values is to to not take anything like that that's artificial. And so uh, I say that in a non-judgmental way, it's, I don't care if other people do it, but for me, I'm trying to do it in a natural way. So peyote, peyotes and mushrooms that grow under trees. Yeah. And just, I don't they feel, they feel superficial or artificial. I don't, I, I don't want, it's, so it goes, it goes to my value and it's kind of hard for me to, to explain, uh, but I don't want to do those things. Mm -hmm. um, but I honor the people that try those and experiment with those and are kind of pushing the boundaries of our knowledge as humans about what mm -hmm. happens. Uh, but I'm trying to do it without those things. Mm, got it. Well, I mean, there are so many different ways to expose yourself and, and open yourself up. I think, you know, like um, even music or a photograph yeah. or telling a story. It, it's a way to open up other people's stories and, and uh, you know, the different gateways, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. So your book, Full Body, yes. I'm wondering, um, you're, it's coming out in May. You chose yes. to publish with page two. Uh, tell us yes. about your experience of writing this book. And, and the, the specific question I want to get you to answer is, which was the personal story that was most difficult for you to relate and oh. why? Yeah. Yes. Well, my experience at the high level was I'd been thinking about writing a book for 20 years. And every time I you know, kind of sat down to really write it. It just wasn't there. It wasn't time. And I was on my way home with one of my friends. We were doing a speaking event and my friend was driving and he gets this funny look and he looks over at me and he says, the universe has told me to tell you that it's time to write your book. <laughs> and I kind of checked, I checked internally. I'm like, yeah, I get, I guess it is. And the timing just worked out beautifully. But by the time that I had found an editor and sorted out a, an outline and it was time to actually write, it was exactly the time of quarantine. <laughs> and so I essentially traded my 45 minute commute, you know, in the morning for writing time. Um, and it just flowed. I finished writing in 10 weeks, which, um, it's brilliant. Uh, which I understand is quite fast. And so then these are the stories of my life, but in a teaching arc of the things that I teach, you know, uh, I call it the journey from me to we, the journey from being selfish uh, and just thinking about ourselves to developing ourselves in order to serve others and to serve life. And so for me, the, the story that was hardest, which I, I wasn't even sure if I was going to tell, but then my editor turned it into the opening story of the book. Mm. Uh, was me about to take my life as a teenager. Yeah. 15 years old, driving. Yeah, I was driving and I was kind of fantasizing about pulling in front of a big 18-wheeler on the other lane and just, you know, kind of ending it all. Uh, and it's a very dramatic story. 
And it took me, uh, it was even now, even now, every time I read it, I tear up. Mm. Um, it's, uh, and that's been part of the healing process too, of writing the book is just getting it all out there. I mean, these are the stories of my life, but, and I, I understand them at a fairly deep level, I think, but when you put them all out there and you talk about them and you connect them and you, you know, now all of a sudden I understand my life in such a more comprehensive and intimate way than I did before. Hmm. Yeah, it reads, uh, it's pretty gripping. And I, I, you know, we're roughly the same age somewhere in there. But um, thinking about all those details, all that time back, and then which ones did you want to talk about? Which ones maybe you're like, oh, I don't want to say that. Or mm. I was just imagining all the little voices in your head as you went through that story. It's, it's yeah. awfully uh, deep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now each, uh, you know, as I was writing it, I, I knew that for it to be powerful, that I was going to need to get vulnerable, mm -hmm. you know, and it's one thing to be vulnerable with a friend that you've just met, you mm -hmm. know, at a party. It's another to write it in a book that anybody in the world could read. No doubt. That is, that's been an interesting experience. I'm sure. And then the other part of that whole thing is my being vulnerable means sharing stories about my family. And now, and now I've had to go back and have conversations with different family members about some of these experiences as well. And it's, uh, some of those have been very hard conversations, but they've also been very healing conversations over time. Hmm. So it's, uh, it's super transformative. Yeah. For me personally. Yeah. I can just relate to that because the first book I wrote with page two was um, a biography about my family. So there were many family conversations in there and some were certainly hard. So I can, I can very much relate to that. Mm. Well, uh, there, I mean, there's so many great parts to your book. Um, I, the thing I really latched onto was inside out because mm. actually that's um, also in my latest book, I, I talk about inside out, but in a different way, I talk about inside out from a corporate standpoint that whatever you wanting to do for your customers through your distributors, you need to be first thinking for your employees. Yes. So, so you, you, so if you want to be empathic towards your customers or compassionate, fine, but start by walking that talk within. So inside out, that's my version of it. What about yeah. what's your version of inside out? Yeah. I talk about changing work from the inside out as my personal mission. And I mean it as kind of a, I don't know, triple entendre at, at the very least. And so partly it's me, literally me and each one of us changing our own consciousness because how we view work is really through our own lens. And so as we live a more optimistic life versus pessimistic, as we take more ownership versus being a victim, we're going to change the world, you know, even if it's just you know, the people we touch around us. So that's one is the me level. Uh, the second I meant because of who I have been. So I was a VP of global customer operations. You know, I led a giant team. And because I'm taking this role as head of mindfulness, I can change the company from the inside out uh, because of who I have been. And then the third piece is because of who LinkedIn is in the world and our connectivity to the rest of the industry, I think we have a chance to change how business is done. 
Um, because as we change and as we influence and through things like LinkedIn learning and just the way the platform works um, and the best practices through um, employee surveys through our company called Glint, I think we can have a chance to change consciousness um, from LinkedIn. You know, So the, those are at least three ways. Mm. But generally, it means hey, if you want to change the world, first change yourself. Mm. Uh, yeah, if I go back to Rumi again, because he says it better than everybody. He says... Yesterday, I was clever, and I tried to change the world. Uh, but today, I am wise, and I'm working on myself. Mm. Yeah, I loved his quotes. I, um, I, I, I was reading them, and each of your chapters starts with a roomy quote. Mm. So, Because I skipped the, the where, how you got into him. So I had to find that piece again to understand about this poet. And yeah, he, he seems very full. Um, so... The thing that I spend a lot of time doing is uh, looking at marrying who you are, let's say once you know who you are, with the enterprise for whom you're working with, with whom you're working. Mm. And so uh, generically, and then maybe more personally, how does one make that fit work? Because I mean, Mm. there are not a million people that have the head of mindfulness and compassion at work. All right. So and actually, there's only you know, usually one CEO. There's usually one VP of finance or whatever. Sure. And and how do you end up marrying that version of you yeah. into with the values that version of a company? And talk us through that. Yeah, I think you know just like we were talking about um, values at the beginning. I think that's where it starts. So you know the advice I give people starting out or generally anytime is you're trying to find this intersection. Well, in, in the Japanese uh, world, there's a concept called Ikigai, where you try to get at the intersection of these four circles. And the four circles are the thing I'm good at, the thing I like to do, the thing that someone will pay me for, and what the world needs, right? So you imagine those four circles. So as an example, when I was 18, uh, part of me wanted to move to New York and be a singer, okay? Well, that was the thing I was good at. The thing dad I liked. Dad didn't want you to do it. <laughs> exactly. Dad didn't want me to do it because the trouble is the thing that someone will pay me for is very, very hard, right? And so I took a more practical route. Uh, and over time with each job that I took, with each opportunity or even each day that you choose, you're trying to move closer to that, in the middle of that circle. And yeah, you could be an accountant, Um but maybe you really love storytelling. And so, okay, well, when you're telling the, when you're sharing the numbers at the end of the quarter, you're not just throwing up dry data, you're telling the story of how the finances worked. Or maybe you're scratching that itch by joining Toastmasters. Um, so whether it's your exact job or the things that you do a little bit on the side at work or the things that you do at home, it's continually trying to move closer and closer to that circle. And to not give up on it, right? So, you know, as an example, I kind of always wanted to be a writer, but again, same problem. Um, but I would write along the way, even, even, you know, as I was doing these other things in career. And now I'm finding myself kind of mid or later in career. And now I can pick it all up again. I can pick up the writing. I'm scratching my itch, my creative itch with photography and with music on the side. And now I have a very full life. And frankly, I have the finances to go travel, 
to the places to do photography. I have the connections to, you know, write a book and have people actually read it. And so I'm finding that uh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter um, so much those things, but am I getting closer and closer and closer to the center of my values, to the center of that Ikigai point? I have this vision, this image, you know, uh, you, sometimes you go into museums and, and there's this huge metal half orb that has a hole in the bottom, bottom and you can either do roll a, a coin yeah. or yeah. a ball bearing. And it goes yeah. round and round and, and it just hypnotically keeps on going. And of course, it doesn't really matter if it actually hits the middle because yeah. anyway, it's our journey, right? But the, right. The, 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 the hope is that we're moving with gravity down towards that you know, intersection. That's exactly right. And sometimes, sometimes it feels like you're just circling around the very top and not making any progress. But eventually, we all get to the center of the bowl at the bottom. But I think to to have that draw, that gravitational pull, mm. it feels like, according to what you were saying, really, it's it's actually bearing down on your values mm. and, and doing that sort of harder work. And the stronger that you know those values, that they are a core component, probably reduced down to a very small group, because mm. otherwise it's all diluted, right? Mm. And then it's just not, it's got sort of weak, it's weak pull as opposed to heavy gravitational. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's well said. I like that analogy. I will be, I'll be using that myself. There you go. I was just procreating it just because that's what you were saying. All right. So head of mindfulness and compassion at yeah. LinkedIn, you talk about how the founder CEO uh, has made compassion an important part of the, the company. I'm, I'm wondering uh, you know, just this division that Minter has is you're walking around in some monk robe as you walk around. <laughs> Hardly. No, no, of course not. But tell us how, what is, what is, what happens? I mean, of course we've gone through the pandemic. Sure. Which has really changed things around, but what, what does a, what does a director of mindfulness and compassion do? Yeah. So, so it's a great question. Let me, I'll split it into two parts. So the first part is around mainstreaming mindfulness. And for me, this started, you know, because I have a practice and have had since I was 13, I've been teaching since I was in college. Um, from my place as when I was running operations, I noticed that LinkedIn was such an open place because our CEO is out in the world talking about his own practice. I thought maybe I can bring my own practice here, you know, and I started by leading one meditation class. And uh, to be honest, it was terrifying because <laughs> I didn't know what people would think of me, right? Right, because these are your collaborators, these are your colleagues. Yeah, exactly. And I was a leader at the company, so I had all this ego and fear stuff about, okay, what does this mean for me? What, what are people going to think of me? What will this do for my brand? All this nonsense. And I finally got out of my own way and led one session. And that first week, there was just one guy there, and I'm sure he was just as terrified as I was because I never saw him again. And the next week there were three and then five. And it turned into a regular thing where I would, you know, a special event would happen and I would lead a practice. And I became known as the meditation exec. Like people just knew that I did it. And it became part of my identity, which is, which is what I wanted because that's who I am outside of work as well. And this was still from my operations role. And then for me, the tipping point was our CEO gave the commencement address at Wharton where he's an alumni and was talking about, hey, look, if you want to be successful in life, be compassionate. 
If you want to be successful at work, be compassionate. And I was thinking, okay, it's time for us to invest in this. I'd been volunteering, you know, as the head of mindfulness programs. We didn't have one before that. I'd been volunteering for four years. Um, and I thought, okay, well, it's time. Look, because if we're going to send 16,000 people back to their desk with this idea that compassion is the most important thing, what does that mean? And so I made a pitch to the CEO uh, and to the head of HR and created this role. All right. So, to, and with their support, uh, I've been doing it for the last two and a half years. So, two parts to the role. The first one is mainstreaming mindfulness, and the second part is operationalizing compassion. And so mainstreaming mindfulness is just about making meditation or let's say mental exercise just as normal and everyday as physical exercise, right? Because physical exercise, like our grandparents didn't exercise. This is a new thing, right? This is only in the last 40 or 50 years that gyms and exercise and stationary equipment have become, you know, part of our consciousness as part of what we do. So in the same way we provide, you know, daily meditation sessions. We provide apps that people can use, uh, a speaker series, you know, drop in community classes, just making it as normal as physical exercise. That's part of my job. So that's interesting. And that's all about the development of self. But to me, I think where the juice is, is around compassion. Because compassion is how we interact with each other. It's how we interact with our customers. And I would say this one we have as an industry further to go um, but this is, this is where the exciting stuff is. So let me give you an example. What does it mean to operationalize compassion? Mm -hmm. I think of it as this journey from me to we, right? When we move from self-centered to other centered, including us, the whole centered. So as an example, this happens at the individual level. That's easy to see. If somebody's having a bad day, put my arm around them, ask how they're doing simple, but at the company level, here's, here's a couple of ways it happens. Our head of sales will stand in front of 5,000 salespeople at sales kickoff and say, look, our role in sales is to provide long-term value. So don't sell something our customers don't need at the end of the quarter, just so you can hit your quota. So think about that. Like that is not how I was taught when I was a 25 year old salesperson. That is different, right? Or in uh, product, when we're developing product, uh, a product manager, will come into our product executive team to talk about what their version of the product is gonna do next. And if they start talking and they're like, oh, this new thing we're gonna do, it's gonna result in 13% more clicks, more, more engagement. And the first question is always, okay, well, how's the member experience? And if the answer is, um, well, did I mention it's 13% <laughs> and if the member experience is no good, like the meeting just stops. And it turns into a lesson about, hey, our number one value is members first. So we're not just going to put this thing out there if it's a bad experience, just so we can get a few more clicks. Like that's not what we do. That's not who we are. Our job is to provide long-term value. So these are the types of things, you know, we know from the work that, um, uh, from the book, uh, Firms of Endearment and Conscious Capitalism, the guys mm -hmm. who kind of started that, that firms who take care of all of their stakeholders not just their shareholders, they're actually more successful, meaning they make more money. So eventually this will be the way that we do business, not just some like Silicon Valley thing. Like this is how you win. Mm. Love it. Um, of course, and the firms of endearment is a great book. So um, what I'm thinking through is 
how does this successfully get implemented in another company? Because in the end of the day, just hire Scott Shute, author of Full Body Yes, wears monk's clothing, and he knows how to do it. That's one way. The, the reality is we can't make you clone you, despite you know previous lives you might have had. We, how, does a, how does a company get to that point? Do they need to like have a, a chief transformation officer, uh, a chief Maybe. meditation? Well, here's the thing. So how does a company make change at all in any type of change they're going to make, right? It always, always, always starts with leadership. Right. Because no matter what the the masses want, if the C-suite doesn't want that and they're headed in a different direction, it will never happen. It will happen in pockets, but it will never be, you know. And so just like we were talking about the individual, how does an individual develop in consciousness? Maybe these aren't the words we used, but how do we, you know, get closer? It goes back to our values, right? So for a company, it works exactly the same thing. This is the inside out. We start with the C-suite, with the leadership team and identifying our values. And if those values align with this thing that we're talking about, are we solving for the whole? You know, are we doing good in society? Are we really trying to provide a great environment for our employees? Are we really trying to provide value for our customers? You know, and we have a good business model. And then we build every single policy, every single way of doing, every single reward mechanism to align with those things, then it's exactly like the development of a person, right? If I want to be a good person, like, like these masters I was reading about, how do I do that? Well, the answer was listen, right? Listen to your heart, listen to the values. And then every step, is it aligned with that listening? Is it aligned with those values? It's, it's simple, but it's extraordinarily hard. It's incredibly hard. And I would, I would say, suggest at least for many companies, it won't be possible. A, they may not have those values, certainly. And B, the top C-suite doesn't believe, doesn't have them bought in on it. So if you're trying to be a middle manager, trying to persuade uh, the top, what the arguments have to tend to focus around performance, right? And how firms of endearment work and, and why this will end up better well-being. I can get you 13% to use a, you know, a crass number, uh, better retention of employees, you know, less burnout. Uh, there's so many other benefits to this, but, but you, would, you would have thought that a CEO, I mean, every CEO has read something about this by now. I mean, even Wired Magazine or the Wall Street Journal that will carry these types of conversations and, and content, but they're not doing it yet. Yeah, yeah. Just like physical exercise. Everybody knows the benefits of physical exercise, but still there's only a small percentage of us that get up at 5.30 in the morning to go for a run or to work out or only eat broccoli instead of potato chips. Like we all know the answer. We all know it, but it can be so hard, right? In the same way, being, uh, let's take just being a manager. It's easier to be a command and control manager. Hey, I told you what to do. Just do what I said, right? It's easier to be a jerk. It takes more work to be compassionate, but when you are, you're such a better manager. You'll get so much more out of your employees in the same way at the company level. It's sometimes easier to focus on yourself, right? 
how are we going to make money this quarter, especially in industries or business models that are struggling? It's really hard sometimes to be thinking about long-term value, but that is where the juice is. That is how you get more out of your employees. And it's how ultimately you win is providing long-term value and a great place for your employees to work. So you use the word compassion. And, and uh, so I've written a book about empathy mm. and I, I tend to focus my energies on empathy, which I consider to be, a step before, really the listening mode. Mm. Talk us through the choice of compassion. Why not love or empathy? Well, so they're all related. Um, it's maybe more complicated. I like to keep things simple, <laughs> but I think of compassion as empathy in action. Mm. And perhaps it's not exactly that, but it's close enough. And uh, I think compassion is another word for love. And love is another word for the divine. And so compassion is, I think, the word that most closely represents the thing uh, and a word that we can use at work. That's it. I have a friend, well, actually another person who was on this show, uh, Yatundi Hoffman, who wrote about the value of love in business. Mm-hmm. And she, was, she just went, you know, whole hog for that value. And yeah. why that resonated with me was that when I was running Redken, we had an unofficial because we certainly couldn't tell the top brass. Uh, but she was the unofficial director of love. Yeah. And her assignment was to spread love. I mean, and just, that's it. That's Talk it. Talk about, you know, the, the messiness of some of these softer skills. How do you put an ROI on all this shit? You know, it's like, oh, you're compassionate, woofty tufty, you know, weirdo. You know, <laughs> love, get out of here. We're here to perform. We have shareholders to please, damn it. Exactly. That's what we're trying to do. It's a, this other love and all these these words well i can't even remember what you just said but uh, all these words that we describe something like my role i think in 50 years you know just like it was so strange 50 years ago if people were exercising uh and now it's commonplace in 50 more years my hope is that we'll all be speaking the same language so you went through a pandemic we have uh, where probably a lot of people, you, know, you had 45 minutes extra every day to write a book. Other people could be thinking about things. To what extent has the pandemic been an opportunity for your story, for what you do? And what's going to happen after it? Are we, is it, what's sticking? Um, so for me personally, I mean, I've gone through the challenges everybody else has gone through, but I, I am grateful to be to have a job, you know, where I can work remotely. I'm grateful to have a healthy family. So first of all, I'm, I realize I'm uh, living in a privileged world. You are a black belt of gratitude. <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, in terms of how it has impacted the work I do. So as an example, from my job, every Thursday, I would lead a meditation session at work. And it's on the fourth floor of this particular building on a campus that has 15 buildings. And maybe there'd be three to 12 people there, depending on who would walk from all the different buildings to get there. Well, that was then. Now we do daily sessions by Zoom and I get people from all over the world. You know, and when we first started, there'd be 140 people you know, dialing in. <laughs> and partly because they need it. There's two things going on. One is during a crisis, we tend to retreat inwardly. 
And I think that's been very healthy as a, as a population because with less distractions, we've again, essentially been forced to reevaluate our values. And so I talked to someone now, they, they, what they're grateful for in life. It comes down to one of two things or both of these things. One is their health, because you realize pretty quickly, if you're not healthy, nothing else matters. And two is your connections, right? Your, your family, your friends, your, your, your spouse. And so they've gone inwardly. And so more people show up to the things that I'm doing. More people are interested in their own self-development. Uh, so that has been a beautiful thing. And it's indicative of most crises that we go through is like it, going back to the rub, right? We don't, none of us would have chosen this. But when things are very difficult, we tend to experience the deepest amount of growth. Love it. So uh, last question for you, Scott. Um, and it's basically because we, we share a common interest uh, with Japanese. Uh, you, 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 you write a lot about the inner voice, the inner critic. Yeah. And my feeling sometimes with these types of conversations around compassion and doing good mm. is that it can be a little bit uh, unrealistic. Mm. There's a lot of shit out there. There are a lot of less good people. And they're, yeah. you know, talk about going to war, uh, how, yeah. you know, that that's bad stuff and bad Absolutely things happen. Horrible. So uh, you then you talk about um, this uh, Japanese soldier, uh, the, uh, I, the one the one that I've I've come across is the he he uh, spent twenty nine years after the Second World War before he surrendered in the Philippines, yeah. and he he didn't believe that the war was over. There was just you're just trying to pull me on, um, and so you, you, you I'd love for you to just talk us through how one that Japanese soldier who just sticks around after the war yeah. uh, is like the inner critic sure. that you can or cannot keep. Well, many of us have. <clears throat> Pardon me. We are programmed to focus on the negative, right? Our amygdalas are constantly scanning for danger uh, and they have an itchy trigger finger, right? They're always looking for what's bad because that kept us, has kept us alive. In the same way, our minds then tend toward the negative because that's how we evolved, right? It's much better for evolution to assume that things are bad and take a very uh, you know, protective stance against them. And so the stories we tell ourselves then are negative as well on the whole, you know, they shade towards the negative. So this inner critic is often telling us, oh, you can't do that. You're no good at that. You're going to fit like telling us all the dangerous things. And that keeps our life very, very small. But when we shift our attention to optimism of what could be Look, we're not sugarcoating the bad things. We're not putting our head in the sand and ignoring them. But when we focus on what's good, when we focus on what could be in a positive way, then our lives become full of possibility. So the inner critic, in some cases, we, we want to recognize it. Like we want to honor it. We want to listen to it and say, okay, I hear you. And there's this other voice I'm also going to listen to. So I'm going to ask you to now sit down you know, I don't need you anymore in this situation, much like the Japanese soldier who was very valued, you know, uh, to, to his team, to his country. But at some point the war was over and it was time for him to go home, right? So we want to honor him. We want to thank him for his service and send him home in much the same way. The inner critic, we want to say, 
thank you. Thank you for pointing out how, yes, I could have made a fool of myself if I did that. Yes, I see the dangers. And now I'm going to thank you and send you home. And I'm going to go over here and, uh, and create something wonderful. And, and that makes me think that actually a lot of, there, there's a whole nother trend. And I, I, I certainly part of that, which is uh, thinking about courage. Have the courage to do what you were meant to do in spite of the fear. Mm. Uh, because if you don't have the fear, then it might just be, you know, numbskullery. So by having that fear, that inner critic, at least you have that conversation. That's right. And you're not going in blind because just blind idealism is lovely, yeah. but you might not survive. Exactly. No, we want to see things wholly. We want to see the dangers. We want to see the opportunities. The trick is we've been trained to focus on the negative. So it takes a lot of work actually to change, to shift the direction of our lighthouse towards optimism. Hmm. So we want to see all of it and just point towards a more positive direction. So I have a book club in, in, on Amazon uh, about leadership and it's called uh, The Lighthouse Leaders. Mm. I have a feeling I'm going to have to put your book in there. Um, so Scott, thank you so much for coming on and chatting. It's been a lovely, uh, warm and interesting conversation. Um, how can people get your photographs? Sure. Follow you, get your book. At, oh, thanks. They can find me at scottshoot.com. Uh, it has links to my photography, which is also at scottshootphotos.com. The book is called The Full Body Yes. You can find it anywhere good books are sold. And of course, follow me on LinkedIn. That's where the daily stuff happens. Super. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you, and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.